This episode of The Rat is brought to you in part by Audible, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 100,000 downloadable titles. Download a free audiobook of your choice at www.audible.com forward slash The Rat Podcast. Alternatively, for a 50% saving on an annual subscription, download the Audible app and enter promo code TheRat50. Now, here's episode 4 of The Rat. At the exact moment that Shim knocked, on Apani's bedroom door, a fight was brewing. Two residential blocks and one housing estate, due east of Pani's room. At the end of a quiet cul-de-sac better known as Wilderness Way, at a window, on the second story of number 14, stands a single, silhouetted figure. Paul takes a deep, deep breath. As he collects his thoughts, he catches his reflection in the window pane and it causes him pause, as, not for the first time, he is struck by the expression on his face. Hardened, he studies it for a moment too long which meets with the requisite. Come on Paul! Let's do this already! He glances over at James who squirms uncomfortably in his chair, about to face an unknown number of bad guys. He's going to need all his wits about him, and then, without the cacophony of a trumpeter's bugle, nor crack of an official's pistol, he starts, immediately is moving to the left, with a fluidity, unnatural to him in real life. Further left, and they appear. He had played this scenario out a million times, we all had. And he anticipates their movements with a grace that strangely unnerves him and he begins to fight. A, punch, A, punch, A, punch. Each blow finds its target and down they go. One, two, three. But already he's movement, the bad guys continue to materialize as he knew they would. But he's a boy scout, always prepared. Though tonight, no bad would be a rent for kicking ass. B, high kick, B, B and down and B. The figure, backlit, moves in tandem, as if translating his thoughts to scream. Up and B, high kick, B, 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 and then piercing, his mother's voice. Paul, your toy phone thingy is crackling. She tosses his bag to him. He blindly reaches inside for it. Fingers finding first. Yesterday's pastrami on rye? Then crumpled school report? And finally, toy phone thingy. Holding it to his ear, he listens. With intent. Inside him something stirs. Bubbling, excitement. It elicits a sense memory. Had the phone call been part of a Hollywood film it would have played as. 
Hello, Ghostbusters. Yes, of course they're serious. You do? You have? No kidding. Uh-huh. Well, just, uh, just give me the address. Uh, yes, of course. Oh, they'll be totally discreet. Thank you. We got one! But this wasn't a Hollywood soundstage. This was real life. So instead, all he hears is Jim. And all Jim says is, kid. fundamental laws of physics is that light travels faster than sound. This is why you see lightning, before you hear the peals of thunder that announce. It already arrived. It's why crowds at Yankee Stadium see a home run hit, before they hear the crack of bat on ball. Well, in a moment defying the very laws of physics, we heard them coming. Long before we saw them coming, as Jim and I ran out of his front door, we were greeted by Paul, James and Kit, I guess the word is, careening? Around the corner, fish tailing wildly, I caught a glimpse of the scene inside the car through the front windscreen, before being blinded by the headlights. And man what a picture! I would swear they were both, arm in arm, screaming, their headlights were more like spotlights, haphazardly illuminating items in the neighbor's yards. First on one side of the street, then the other, cutting zigzag swaths through the night, their subjects appearing frozen to the spot like actors thrust upon a stage unprepared and fumbling for their line. A garden bed filled with daisies at full bloom. A red front door two houses up the street on the opposite side of the road. Then, a single sunflower back on the side we started. A sturdy brick letterbox stuffed with the local restaurant's latest specials and, finally, Shim's garage door. They were still rolling as both back doors somehow flung open. Shim and I made mirror images of each other as we both, at the same instant attempted to get in the car and, simultaneously dodging, falling breathlessly into the back. We catch the tail end of James's fuckity fuck shit shit. Paul is attempting to act as cool as a cucumber. But the look on his face is tattled to those of us in the back seat. Apparently, he thinks he has done something that is the bee's knees. He reaches into his pocket, pulls out a portable cassette player, and wordlessly hits play. Where to? Kid asks from behind the inbuilt speaker. You'll have to ask these guys, Paul replies before bursting into laughter. Without missing a beat, Shim says, Kid, Little Italy. 
With Paul at the wheel, James and I turn our attention to Shem. And he begins to color in for us, what had gone on with Penny. I will attempt now to do the same for those of you listening. However, good manners insist that I leave out most of the swears dropped by Shem, which number in the hundreds. In a three minute monologue. Seriously, hundreds. It seems that on the last Thursday of every month, Panny and a few of his friends at college would pool their money and invest, Panny's word, not mine, in an outsider, parlay, pick six. For those of you who are as unfamiliar with horse racing terminology as I was, this was how Shim explained it to us. Number one, an outsider is a horse that is not expected to win. Number two, a parlay, is a kind of let it ride bet, where, the winnings of the first race, are the bet of the following race selected, and so on. And, number three, a pick six is betting on the outcome of six consecutive races. What this boils down to, is they were betting that a horse, who had no business being out on a racetrack, would somehow win a race, against seasoned professionals. And that this would happen, six times in a row. According to Panny, they had won one race. Once. Other than that, never even a close call. There was no arguing. It was stupid. Now here was the problem. The Thursdays just passed, at 4.12pm, at the Aqueduct Racetrack in Queens, New York. A filly by the name of Miss Money Penny stumbled across the line very nearly throwing her jockey. A photo finish. After some tense moments, the result was in. She had won the Marshall Stakes by a nose. Giving Panny and friends, short-lived, but very real cerebral embolisms and, that pick six. Now I know what you're probably thinking. I thought it too. These poor bastards. How can we help? Well, winning the pick six wasn't the problem. Pause for collective sighs of relief. We can sleep at night people. The problem, was their payout. You see to be a bookie? You really ought to be good with numbers. Some would even argue that it's critical. Enter, Rudy Two Shoes. A guy with a dilemma if ever there was one. He was smack bang at that dreaded fork in the road that life every now and then throws up, to make sure we are paying attention. And he was lost. You see, whilst Rudy Two Shoes had one foot pointed in the direction of a college education, he also had one foot firmly planted in the direction of the family business, bookmaking, and not the respectable kind, where you declare things at the end of the year to the Internal Revenue Service. More like the mob run kind. In fact, his father, on his 18th birthday, had handed him a modest book to manage. Which he had been doing. On the side. Desperate for his father's approval. Problem was, Rudy Two Shoes was no good with numbers. Terrible some said. So, when he came to pay out this particular pick six, instead of handing the boys $2,000 a head, he dropped 20 large on each of them. Now, most of the boys took the dough and split. Not Penny. Penny had made an egregious error in judgment. 
Guided by a strong moral compass, he had done the unthinkable. He had brought the error, to the attention, of one Mr. Rudy Two-Shoes. In turn, as much as he liked Panny, and he liked him a lot, after realizing the full extent of his miscalculation, Rudy had been left with no choice but to take the matter to his father, and from that moment on, the whole thing was out of his hands. First, he was instructed to arrange a lunch. Nothing fancy Panny, just a little Italian joint I know. My way of saying thanks, except when Panny gets there, it's his old man who will be doing the ordering. Panny was quiet throughout the whole ordeal. Wasn't much he could say. His predicament was explained thusly. He was it. He was the one who physically placed the bet with Rudy. End of story. Obviously, he had returned $18,000 already, so he was on the hook for $102,000. He couldn't pay. If it wasn't for Rudy's emphatic intervention, a snub-nosed Ruger would have ended our story there. But he didn't intervene. Begged and pleaded. Cried. And so, in the end, Panny left with his life, and, a debt that needed to be worked off. After the long moment, from the driver's seat, Paul asks, How did the old guy say he could work it off? That's what we're here to find out, Shimmer replies, pointing. We all turned our heads in unison, tracking Shim's finger. Through the tinted lens of Kit's windows, we took it in. Neon lit. Rudolfio's Trattoria Restaurante. Or Rudy's. I was completely unaware as the four of us walked through the front doors of the restaurant, that we were being recorded. A recording which still exists today. Would I have behaved any differently had I known? Perhaps not. Would I have chosen my words, with more care and discretion, armed with the knowledge that they would live beyond their utterance? Perhaps. But what I do know with certainty is that in order to share your truth with others, you must first be honest with yourself. So at this juncture, I'll hand it over to what real to real saved for posterity. Unedited. Where appropriate, I'll overlay some commentary for you, the listener, if there is something I feel may be relevant. But only where it serves to aid your mind's eye in conjuring the scene unfolding in audio. Now, for those of you who weren't with us in the 1980s, the decade that fashion forgotten hair remembered. I should know that the quality of audio recordings back then, could run the full spectrum, from shit, to fucking shit. This one is actually pretty good. Others aren't. So here it goes. The deep voice you hear belongs to none other than Rudy's father. Mr. Ricky Barbarino. Take your coats. No, thank you. And is it a table for four this evening? We're actually here to speak with Mr. Barbarino. Let me see if he is in house. Rick the Barb has just appeared from the kitchen door and motioned us over, and Shim has begun to introduce himself. Hold it. Stop. I just want to make sure I'm getting this right. You're paying me a little visit because you're Panny's kid brother. I get it. 
rest of you are what? The Moral Support Club, here to support him. Over my right shoulder I could sense Paul rising and falling on his toes, almost imperceptibly, like a tennis player awaiting serve. So, can I ask? <laughs> are you guys in a gang or something? Because I can't decide if that's sad or precious. Precious. That was Pa who, for some reason, now felt he was the appropriate person to have this conversation. That's a pretty small gang if it's just the four of you. Well, there's kind of five, but one's not official. Oh, Kit's official. I'm not talking about Kit, I'm talking about Millie. Oh. Well then yeah, you're right, the fifth's not official. I mean, I have a document which we all signed, in our own blood, clearly stating, item 4 subsection 3, no girls allowed. No exceptions. You signed that, didn't you, Paul? I could have sworn you did. Enough! You kids are friggin' kooks. Apparently now is not the time. Are you kidding me? I'd rather be a kook than a fucking fuck up. Ask your son Rudy. He knows. Jerk. Watch it there, Polly. You're well on your way to making a very bad first impression. Your parents raise you without teaching you manners. Wait a minute. Ooh, shit. Shit. I'm really very sorry. Can we please start over? To answer your initial question, yes, we are a gang. Is it sad or precious? To me, it's precious. Probably the most precious thing in my life. That is why we're all here. Now, when Panny came home tonight, he'd been roughed up. Either by you or someone who works for you. Scared his mom half to death. Not good. Shim has filled me in with what's happened to this point. We want to know what we can do to put this unpleasantness behind us. And, as Dad says, if you want to know something, ask somebody in the know. Again, I apologize for my earlier outburst. This has clearly been a rough day, and I let my nerves get the better of me. Okay, better. Your father sounds like a decent man, Paul. A smart man. You're lucky. My old man was a hitter. A real mean drunk. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. So was I. I want you to remember this kid. It will stand you in good stead. What your father has failed to account for with his advice is there's two kinds of smarts in this world. Book smarts and street smarts. One you learn. Yeah, and one you're taught. Exactly, kiddo. So if you're going to ask something of somebody in the know, better do some research first on just who the fuck you're dealing with. Understood. And if you don't mind, my two cents. Sure. This wasn't going the way I thought it would. Girls can make things messy. What? Oh my god, Millie. You're way off. Some people may care about the mess. I don't. I've got a girl that I love, and I just don't want to have to hide anything from her. It doesn't feel right, or particularly first to her. Pa has a point. Funny you should say that, Paul. My old man was a waste of space. The world is better without him in it. He only ever said one thing that was worth repeating. It was towards the end, not long before he made himself a mural on our bathroom wall. 
He said that there is no greater feeling that a man can have in this life than when he's sharing himself completely with his partner, laying himself in front of her bare and utterly vulnerable. However, you can never fully understand that without first losing her. He called it life's cruelest kindness. It resonated with me then. It still does. The universal flow of things at work. Uh-huh. Exactly. You're growing on me, kid. This wasn't going the way I thought it would at all. Likewise. So tell me, how do we make this all go away, Mr. To the point. Good. Well, it's very simple, boys. One way or another, Rick the Barb collects. Always. No exceptions. So the way I see it, you got two options. Option one, you track down the five bastards who split with my cash. Panny's so-called friends. Persuade. Or force them to give you the cash back which you can then deliver to me. Or option two, you do some hot jobs for me. Here and there. Stuff I don't want to touch due to unwanted attention from Johnny Law. It's your call. You've got a couple of days. Don't call me, I'll call you. And boys. You don't want to let me down here. You need to fucking trust me on that. I will fucking hurt you or those you love. Real fucking bad. And I won't hesitate. I've made a business out of it. As they regard each other across the stainless steel divide, they both grin. Hey kid. Rudy's not a fuck up you know. Yeah. I know. That was out of line. Sorry. And was that? Ricky Barbarino turned on his heel and punched Hope in the door leading into the very back of the restaurant. And we were escorted out and tossed to the wind. Back in kid, we sat, stunned. Every now and then someone would open their mouth to speak, but each time they would freeze, the words faded to remain unarticulated. If it's possible, Paul was exceptionally silent. He took a deep, deep breath. The expression on his face hardened. He reached into his pocket, pulled out a portable cassette player, and wordlessly pressed play. Rick the Barb's words rang from behind the inbuilt speaker. Stuff I don't want to touch due to unwanted attention from Johnny Law. I will fucking hurt you or those you love. You, gutsy, bastard, James said, shaking his head. I said this isn't high school hijinks you guys, but I'm obviously all in. I outstretched my arm, my fist filling south of frame. There's nothing the five of us, together, can't achieve. I looked at Paul who caught my eye and acknowledged my apology with a wink. He was a class athlete kid. Even now, his way, brings me a smile. War drums herald the three remaining fists as they fill the remaining compass points. I looked each of my three friends in the eye. Guys we are like parts of a homemade bomb, I said. Alone. Harmless. As four fists move skyward, four sets of fingers outstretch, like parachutes, unfurling, emboldened, by the rushing wind. Four voices, combine, to whisper. Together. Kaboom.